Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, new polling shows that more Canadians across the board agree with the federal government invoking the Emergencies Act to clear out the so-called Freedom Convoy last year. Did the public inquiry actually sway public opinion? Michael Kempa, Associate Professor of Criminology at the University of Ottawa, will join us to talk about that. Brantford looks like the new home for the Hamilton Bulldogs, with First Ontario Centre going under renovations. Uh, Jasper Kajaski, a member of the Hamilton Urban Precinct Arts and Entertainment Group, will give us an update on Hamilton's hockey future. And an update on the Mike Schreiner liberal leadership situation with Warren Kinsella, former special assistant to Jean Chrétien. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Well, uh, you know what was going on in Ottawa a year ago this week? Uh, yeah, indeed, it was the, well, they called it the Freedom uh, Convoy. Others, I think, had other names for it, but uh, it went on for quite some time, as we know. And ultimately, the uh, federal government uh, invoked the Emergencies Act, and we know there was an inquiry. Well, that inquiry's uh, final result is uh, going to be coming up pretty soon. Uh, Justice uh, Paul Rouleau, of course, is uh, putting the final touches on his report uh, that uh, is going to touch about his opinion and based on an awful lot of the uh, advice that he has received and certainly some of the testimony during the uh, the hearings over the last couple of months. Uh, but interestingly enough, uh, the folks at Angus Reid have done some surveying on a national level here. And it seems that, yes, it, this is a very polarizing issue, the convoy and how the federal government responded to it. But there seems to be a slight shift in, in how many Canadians are viewing it right now. And some, a little more than before, are now suggesting that it was probably the right thing to do by the government, which uh, may be a surprise to some of the folks that adamantly have been opposed to this. But maybe that polarization is, is starting to soften just a little bit. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Michael Kempa. Michael is an associate professor of criminology at the University of Ottawa. Uh, Michael, a pleasure to have you back in the program. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Bill. We talked, actually, Lee and I had many conversations while this was happening, and, and of course, after that, as, uh, as this inquiry started to happen, uh, the fact that the numbers of people who are leaning now towards the government and saying maybe this was the right thing to do at the time, did the testimony at the inquiry have a lot to do with that or anything to do with that, Michael? I'm pretty sure that it did for a couple of reasons. Number one, also in the numbers, we see that the um, inquiry itself, which was broadcast, uh, for an incredible number of hours with quite explosive testimony from witnesses, generated a fair amount of engagement on the part of the Canadian public. It wasn't at the top of the issues of the year that captured Canadians' attention, but it was up there. And I think that the evidence that was presented left a lot of people with the idea that although it may not have been an acute national emergency, like in the sense that there was a militia prepared to overthrow the government, there was something there that was out of control that the ordinary state institutions were just not capable of dealing with. So whether you agree with the fact that the thresholds were met or not, the impression I get is a lot of people simply feel it was necessary one way or the other. And I'm not sure if that's a great outcome. It's it's interesting when you look at that, and I think you know many of us have had this discussion as this was happening a year ago, and, and subsequent uh, during the the investigation that was happening here. Uh, is it's one thing to say here's the law, uh, and another thing to say okay, how do you apply this? Because uh, it, let's face it, there's an argument to be made. I guess that many laws are made in the hypothetical, uh, but there can be variations on this. Uh, you know, this was not the FLQ crisis, or was it? 
You know, there was some testimony during uh, the inquiry uh, that talked about the fact, well, the ineptitude of Ottawa police, certainly, but also that, that there could have been and probably were a number of Ottawa police officers that were complicit in this. So, I mean, how deep did that go? We don't know. I, I don't think they, they dug that far into that particular issue. But it does raise some questions and some doubts about just how serious some of those people were, doesn't it? It does. Uh, I mean, for one, one of the things that we've been saying all along is there were many layers to this protest. And the majority of people there were perfectly honorable Canadians. They had a point to make about COVID-19. They were angry about their experience of the last few years. Many people have lost their businesses. Governments at every level did make mistakes in how they communicated the uh, COVID-19 governance approaches. And some of the approaches were not particularly wise, which uh, we were dealing with something unprecedented and we were learning as we were going. So under all of that, though, there were groups, and this came out in the testimony of the POET Commission itself. This is not just sort of my opinion. There were groups on the ground that had very bad intentions for democracy who were using the convoy movement as a bit of a riding, almost like riding a wave. They were trying to get in on a big movement that was going for the purposes of attracting some of the gold dust that gets kicked up in these things, the finances, political attention, community status, and trying to recruit people to some of their more radical causes. And you, we've seen that happen in other th situations too, where these these groups, these nefarious groups, and, and I think everybody knows a lot, the names of an awful lot of them these days. Uh, as you say, they probably didn't organize this, but they certainly latched onto it. We saw that happen on January 6th in the States a couple of years ago. Uh, they hold on and, and let's let's go with this this group of disenchanted Canadians and, and try to, to move our cause along at the same time. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I agree with you totally. And I think the uh, the testimony we received at the inquiry probably underscored, underscored that, didn't it, Michael? That maybe some people were just really ticked off Canadians, but there are others there whose stated purpose was to overthrow the government. How would we have viewed our, our, our law enforcement officials if we had said, well, that you just ignore that? How can you ignore something like that? Well, you certainly can't. And, you know, whatever the Rouleau Commission includes, he's either going to come down and say that the government just did not quite meet the thresholds technically, for the Emergencies Act, or they just barely made the threshold. It's not going to be a slam dunk one way or the other. And I would say it's almost necessary for us to digest that information quickly, but then set about dealing with everything else that Rulo is going to address in his report, which is the nature of this problem of uh, ideological extremism in our country. I'm talking about the fringes of movements that have radical ideas about global conspiracies and race-based conspiracies and so forth. Not people who have a bone to pick about maybe there's too much government in our lives. That's a perfectly reasonable political debate. Then we get on to what's going on with our police organizations. What's the size of the problem of complicity with right-wing movements? We have to measure it in order to deal with it. And then we move on to say, what is the problem with the coordination between our cities and provinces and federal government? We need to fix it so that the next time that we've got huge, potentially huge democratic protests, we respond properly. They're governed properly. They don't spiral out of control. We don't ever want to end up invoking the Emergencies Act because even if Rulo were to say, absolutely, the government was justified in mobilizing the Emergencies Act, 
It doesn't mean that we want government invoking the Emergencies Act ever again to deal with protests. Certainly we don't. And it's, it's, I guess what this happens to, this seems to be almost a, a conglomeration of an awful lot of things that we've talked about on an individual basis. And you just hit on one of them, Michael, you know, how much influence do some of these extremist groups have on, on law enforcement and, and, and our military? You know, we've anecdotally heard about incidents like this, and there've been some investigations into it. How deep is it and how much influence does it have? And, you know, the chicken and egg thing, you know, do, do these people, you know, actually uh, try to recruit people from law enforcement into their group, or are they already there? Uh, we don't know a lot about this. And I, I guess one of the takeaways from the commission's report here is that uh, we can't just say, okay, that's done and put the report in the bottom drawer. We, but there has to be action items here, doesn't there? There has to be action items. And what I'm saying is, you know, uh, you know, it's going to sting when this report comes out. You look at these numbers from Angus Reid. Basically, it's a 50-50 split almost across the country as to whether or not Canadians feel that the government did the right thing or the wrong thing or whether this protest was a threat and so forth. 50-50. That means that at least half of the people in this country are going to be upset with the conclusions of this report. And either side who's unset may try to rubbish the report and say that the commission made a mistake or was biased and so forth. I'm saying we're just going to have to get through that. It's going to take a month or two. People will yell and scream. It will be like arguing religion in many ways, because these are matters of personal conviction. And I'm saying we then need to get down to the rational policy discussion. You know, this is the social science bit, right? Where we say, all right, let's understand the problems around us and get about doing what we need to do with all of those institutions, police, oversight bodies, intelligence bodies, as I was saying, with different levels of government as well, and fix these things. One of the things I'm very afraid of is that when looking at these numbers from Angus Reid, I hate to say it, this is shaping up as an almost perfect election issue uh, from the perspective perhaps of the Liberal Party. They may be very tempted in reading these polls to say, if we get a favorable report, we should go right to the polls and sort of scoop up a majority while we may have a chance. Well, especially because the leader of the opposition seems, you know, on, on the, the other side of the fence on these issues, too. And I, I'd hate to think that the, the government thought that this was going to be something that would make a, another election call worthwhile and that they could actually ride the crest of this. Uh, 51 to 49 is not, not really riding a crest. I mean, you're, you're playing with fire if you do something like that, aren't you? You are. But as we break down the numbers a little further, we see that there's been a significant movement amongst liberal and NDP supporters further in the direction of seeing this as having been the right move for government to have made. If, I mean, let's, this is not a liberal thing or an NDP thing or a conservative thing. Political parties exist for the purpose of forming government. If they calculate that they're likely to get a majority because the opinion is swinging in their direction and they get a favorable report, they may calculate that it's the right time or an election, that would be pretty painful. I haven't made up my mind yet as to whether that would be good or bad for national unity. I have to think that through over a few weeks, but it is, as you say, playing with fire. I hope that we are exercising some restraint to not only act on the basis of political calculus with what to do with this report. Sometimes we've seen historically, Michael, that politicians uh, will take the shortest possible path here. Uh, you know, as you say, there's probably going to have to be some things done here. But I, I can see uh, some people reading this report, however it, it you know comes out, 
and saying, well, look, at they've replaced the Ottawa police chief. You know, we've, we've put some barricades up and, you know, we're smart. So, okay, we've, we've done what needed to be done. We've reacted to it and we've made changes. Enough is enough. Uh, or or does, is there the, the political courage to say, no, we've got to go deeper than that? I think that this is one of those moments for, you know, it's the cliche of true political leadership. We obviously have an issue here with numbers at 50-50 across the country that impacts national unity, Canadian identity, where we're going as a country. Whether or not we have the courage in place right now, I think political leaders need to recognize that this is a defining issue for moving forward as, and as cliche as it sounds, as the Canadian state and nation. We've got to say, all right, we have parent divisions in our society. There's no getting around it. We have to discuss it and put in place policies and programs that are designed to address it and debate the quality of those policies and programs. Because, you know, by hammering it out, I mean, there's many people in this country who feel that there is no role for experts or state agencies having anything to do with social engineering. My only response to that would be to say that's what a modern state does. We can put the programs out there and then let's debate their content. Hopefully we'll end up with better programs uh, you know, for pulling people back into the political mainstream as opposed to only participating from the sidelines, not voting, not engaging, and getting all information from alternative media. And, and there are always, as I look at some of these numbers, there's always going to be extraneous factors in, in how some people answer a poll like this. As, you know, the two provinces that were least supportive of this were Alberta and Saskatchewan, which are not really what you call supporters of federalist government to begin with, and, and more so, but the, none of them seem to like our current prime minister, not a whole lot of them anyway. Uh, and that has a factor in it. And yet, then there's so many other elements to this too. You know, the anti-vaxxers versus the insurrectionists versus the anarchists, etc. It was kind of like a, a, a perfect storm of, of people that just don't like organized government and don't like uh, people telling them what to do. And and that's a number that's sadly growing these days too. Was was this an aberration that is going to quell or is there an anticipation that, that we're going to have to deal with future uh, situations like this? Not necessarily in Ottawa, but you know, like-minded things. Absolutely not an aberration. You're completely correct. Faith in government is uh, severely compromised in this country, the United States, certain cases in Western Europe. A lot of that has to do with the failures of government, but also it has to do with what we can almost call the low-hanging fruit. I mean, where government just displays arrogance and incompetence, and no party has a monopoly on that. But things to do, I mean, people don't like to hear about things like CERB payments that were made erroneously that may never be reclaimed to the tune of billions of dollars. People don't like to hear about they can't get a passport for weeks at a time. Basic, competent delivery of essential government services is the first thing the government needs to do in order to start winning some people back by presenting the argument for the merits of the modern state that runs all of these programs, national programs on behalf of the population as a whole, not just local community doing its own thing on the basis of local common sense, marching to the tune of its own or the beat of its own drum, so forth, that kind of non-modern, very fragmented approach to government that is gaining a lot of currency. Well, more to come on this, obviously, when the report comes out. I always appreciative to get your perspective on this. So, Michael, thank you so much for the time today. Thank you, Bill. That's uh, Professor Michael Kempke, uh, criminology professor at the University of Ottawa. 
You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, a lot of concern, a lot of questions about uh, what's going on with the entertainment facilities in downtown Hamilton. Uh, in light of the fact that, of course, uh, the renovations are going to be extensive and they basically told the tenants that they're going to have to find other places uh, to to go play. Uh, the, the Honey Badgers, the basketball team, are gone. Uh, they've moved the franchise now to Brampton. Uh, the Bulldogs are cutting a deal, with, they think, this next week or so with uh, the city of Brantford to move the Bulldogs there. Uh, we're told the deal is going to be for at least three years with options to uh, extend that if they want. So what's happening to Hamilton? Uh, our next guest hopefully can shed some light on that. Jasper Kajaski is a member of the Hamilton Urban Precinct Arts and Entertainment Group called Hugh Pegg and joins us on the program to talk about it. Jasper, thank you for the time. Good to have you on the show again. Thank you very much, Bill. Good to join you. Well, let me, right off the bat, I'm going to culminate a, a, a number of emails, with all of them with questions about what's gone on in the last little while. Uh, with the, the Honey Badgers gone, I guess the Toronto Rock looking for another place, and they, uh, expected that the Bulldogs are going to be in Brantford for, well, we don't know how long right now. Are we going to get a, a, a refurbished arena in a couple of years and no major tenant? No. Number one, the, the renovation is expected to take approximately 20 months. It will start in the fall of 2023. Um, absolutely clear that the Toronto Rock are very excited about returning. They're going to have to relocate for two years. Construction is tough. It's always hard. But the bottom line is it's the right project for Hamilton to maintain what was formerly Cops Coliseum as a re, reborn coliseum in the heart of the downtown core with the big number of seats to do the big shows. So the Brock will be back. We look forward to welcoming the the Bulldogs back, and we think it's going to be an extremely successful project in the long term for all of the people, not just in Hamilton, for everybody in southern Ontario. But, Jasper, you know, Mr. Edlar has told us that you've had no contact. The city has had no contact with him. There's no, not even a discussion about a return date or a contract or some sort of a lease. Uh, that's why I'm suppo- supposing why the Brantford deal, when it finally happens, is, for, they say, for three-plus years. Uh, now, that's if, simply, if, that's if, simply. If you don't make any overtures and just let them go, there's, right now, uh, there's an inclination right now that say, well, we're gone. Now, Bill, with the greatest of respect, that's simply not accurate. In fact, uh, and Michael knows this very well. Are you telling, us, are you telling us that Mr. Andalar is misleading us? I'm not saying, I'm not describing anything other than the fact then that we had a meeting on January the 20th that Michael was in. It was only five people in the room. He knows who was there. He knows what we were discussing in regards to the long term and what has to be done to, to get to uh, an agreement that works for everybody. So uh, he was in that meeting on January 20th. That was only less than two weeks ago, and he knows what the takeaways from that meeting are and what was expected that we're preparing to deliver to him. So um, I was a little bit surprised, quite frankly, when read that follow-up article that, that Scott wrote, Scott Radley wrote, which suggested that there's been no contact because we were just in a meeting on January 20th. Well, and again, he's, he was quoting Mr. Andalar, who simply said there'd been no contact, nobody's talked to him, uh, there's been no suggestion about this. So we're getting crossed stories here, and conflicting stories. Uh, uh, the proof will be in the pudding, I guess, when the Bulldogs sign the lease with the Brantford, if in fact they get that far and find out what happens. Uh, right. I, I know we don't have a whole lot of time here, and a couple of other things sure. I wanted to touch on very quickly. Yeah. Uh, the lack of transparency, John Best from the Bay Observer was just talking about this. I mean, we've heard stories so far, Jasper, that even the new mayor, well, when she was after after her swearing in, Henry Horvath, apparently were told, requested to see the documents of the deal and what was going to happen, and she was refused. 
Uh, I, I guess one counselor was allowed in, but it was apparently a locked room. He was in there by himself, not allowed to have any electronic devices or anything to write with. What, what's the secrecy? Are the, the nuclear codes in here? This is a, 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 a very important part of Hamilton's future. Don't we have a right to know what's happening? From our perspective, first of all, we don't tell the city what their rules are in terms of how they discuss documentation inside City Hall. That's not for us to tell them what to do. From our perspective, we have nothing to hide. Almost virtually all of the essential business elements of this deal are public in terms of the land transaction, the arena, the minimum numbers that are going to be invested into it, the length of the deal, et cetera, et cetera. So we from our perspective, it's out there. The city is free to, to disclose whatever are within their rules to disclose. Uh, in terms of deals that the city does, I don't believe that everything is public. I don't think all the aspects of the airport deal, for example, have been made public and there are other deals there where there's certain proprietary information. From Hubrick's perspective, we think it's all out on the table and we're, we're happy for people to be aware of, of everything that we're doing as long as it from the city's perspective, meets their legal requirements. And that's for them to, to tell you about. We certainly don't speak on their behalf on that. But we don't think there's, a, there's nothing secret about this deal. Uh, well, okay, we'll have to agree to disagree on that from what we've been told, and especially from some of the elected officials. Uh, and I, I want to pursue the the, the, end, uh, the bulldog aspect of this, too. And I know we're sure. just about out of time. Uh, yeah. But I know that you've been involved with this uh, from the get-go. Uh, you yeah. do understand, of course, that, that Mr. Andelar basically has, has the rights, the territorial rights, uh, for putting junior hockey here, or basically any kind of hockey, we were told. Uh, so you're going to have to deal with Mr. Andelar one way or another. Are you... Are you confident that you can do something like that sooner than later and not wait three and three and a half years for it to actually start yeah that's exactly what we were talking about on january the 20th and what flows from those meetings we want the bulldogs back we look forward to welcoming the rock back and having a, a vibrant arena which has huge numbers of concerts and other things so we want the bulldogs back and that's why we were talking to him uh throughout the process if there, you know, yeah, there's there have been different stories that have been told about what meetings took place. I just know where where we were and what we talked about with him, and what certainly most recently we talked about on the twentieth. So, and what's to flow from that meeting? So, we look forward to welcoming the Bulldogs back. We think that they're an in, a very integral part of the community. He has to make business decisions in regards to what he does during the period during the relocation. I won't. Dis nobody will dispute that a renovation is disruptive if it happens in the same location. We're obviously not revisiting the stadium issue. That's a whole. You know, we're not relitigating that. But the no, reality but you, was you didn't learn from it either. We're doing the no, same thing well, all over again. No, no, Bill, we're not because the difference there is, and I'm not getting into a debate about the location of the stadium. I happen. Okay. My cards are on the table. I supported the. Well, I'll tell you what. We're going to have to pick this up a little bit later on, Jasper, because there's some clarity here that I think has to to, to wash over this whole process for a lot of people's uh, sakes anyway. So I appreciate you taking some time today. We're tight against the clock, but we will pick sure. this up at a future date. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Mike Schreiner, Ontario Liberal uh, situation, shall we say, uh, continues to simmer. Uh, Mr. Schreiner was on our program a couple of days ago and said that he's going to take some time and talk to his constituents and talk to liberals and Green Party members. It shouldn't take too long. There aren't too many of any of them in the, in the legislature these days. Uh, and decide whether or not he wants to jump parties and be, run for the Ontario Liberal leadership. 
there are some people with some pretty strong opinions on this, including my next guest. Warren Kinsella is a veteran of the political wars here in Canada, uh, former special assistant to Jean Chrétien and a war room director for Dalton McGiddy uh, during three successful election campaigns. And he joins us on the program to talk about, uh, well, what is happening and what may happen. Uh, Warren, a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks for having me, Bill. Listen, uh, in your in your uh, podcast the other day, you you as you were getting some information about this, and we all were. Uh, the note that the the Liberal Brain Trust, and I use that term advisedly, uh, sent to Mister uh, Schreiner, <laughs> you classified this as a suicide note. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You've been around. You've seen. You, probably you thought you'd seen everything until this came along. Tuck your views on this, and and how the hell this happened, and what may happen as a result of this. Well, it's it's. Uh... Apart, apart from the fact that it's pathetic and sad and a losing strategy, you know, it's a great idea. <laughs> it's, it is absolutely ridiculous. You know, in a single stroke, these so-called luminaries of the Ontario Liberal Party have uh, boosted the fortunes of the Ontario Greens and diminished the fortunes of their own party, who are in the middle of a leadership race right now. So in effect, what they've said to the people who are seeking the leadership, who are actually Ontario Liberals, well, you're not good enough or we don't want you. Like some of them are even in caucus and, uh, and it's a puny caucus. And, you know, we're going to reach outside to the, this, this guy who's leading the Green Party. And, you know, I know Mike and uh, it sounds like you do too. And he's a yeah. nice guy and intelligent, very capable, but he's not a liberal. You know, he's, he doesn't believe in the same things that the Ontario Liberal Party does or used to, you know, and I was involved with that party for many, many years, and I'm just gobsmacked by what these so-called luminaries are doing. Well, I'm going to go back to that. Let's let's talk about those days when you were working, uh, you know, for the, the re-election of Dalton McGiddy. Uh, this is not the the Liberal Party that Dalton McGiddy worked for and, and, and ran for so many years. Uh, there's been a dramatic shift to the left, and, and we think maybe too far. Some people don't think far enough, depending on who you talk to. But uh, before they start deciding, okay, are we going to go outside? They have to decide who they are, don't they? Yeah, they do. And, like, you know, if people have a choice between the real Democrat, New Democratic Party and a let's pretend New Democratic Party, they're always going to choose the new one. You know, I, 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 I'm speculating here as to what madness sees the people who signed this letter. Uh, it may be that they looked up, you know, the 401 at Ottawa and said, okay, you know, Trudeau's done this and he's gotten away with it. And there's some truth to that. But what he did is he took over the NDP. Like he, you know, he created his axis of weasels, as I call it, with uh, Jugmeet Singh. And basically he took, it was a friendly takeover of the New Democrats. This is different, right? This is reaching outside the party and saying, hey, you know, come join us because we're a pretty sad sack group. And it just, it, it looks bad and it, it makes, I, I'm sure Shriner just had a good giggle about it. My understanding is he said no to them before they even sent their letter. And then they went ahead and sent the letter anyway. Why would he reconsider? I, I asked him that the other day, and I, I you know, you get the usual pet answer, you know, well, I want to be able to move forward and, you know, my ideals, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. And I, I get that. That's that's typical of just about any political party and any political persuasion. Uh, but there was an adamant no, and then this letter, he said, seemed to sway him. What could they have put in this letter that would have said, yeah, this is a good idea? Well, I mean, you and I are talking about them right now, aren't we? Yeah. Right? So drag it out, you know, make it last as long as possible cause as much pain to his principal opponent because his principal opponent is the Ontario Liberal Party 
and maximize the advantage it gives your own party. So, like, I don't blame him a bit. He's ragging the puck and having some fun. I mean, it may well be that he's been seized by the same kind of madness and is, is actually thinking about it. But, you know, Canadian political history is littered with examples of people who cross the floor to another party and they end up losing the election in the very next election. Nobody ever really gets away with it. Maybe David Emerson for, for Harper. Uh, I can't actually remember, but it, like it, it never works because people want you to have certain basic beliefs that they can vote about. And they you know, trust you to exercise judgment on their behalf. And this is, it just looks like cynical, backroom, you know, kind of sleazy politics. And I, you know, I'm astounded by the, some of the signatories to this letter. It's like uh, if you ever wanted evidence that the Kathleen Wynne bunch uh, know how to lose, this is yet more evidence of it. But, but we're told that one of the people that signed this was Greg Sobera, who was the, the finance minister in the McGinty government. Uh, and again, pretty smart guy who's, who's been up and down in the political wars. Uh, and some other folks from, from that era of the Liberal Party as well. Uh, have they thrown up their hands and say, we give up? Greg Sobera got elected because of Dalton McGinty. Right? Yep. That, that's why it was McGinty floated all boats. He got, you know, uh, two majorities and he came one seat shy of a majority in 2011. Dalton McGinty is the reason why any of those people have bus fare, Greg and uh, Cerbera included. And they should pay attention to what he did and what he always did, which is stick to the center. You know, when people were advocating for Sharia law, he said no, right? And if he's, oh, you're being a conservative or what have you. Uh, but, you know, he's also the guy who did the Green Bell, which was pretty popular too. McGinty had this unerring instinct for where Ontarians were. And that's in the political center. And this is not in the political center. The people who signed that letter took the steering wheel and aimed it for the ditch on the left side. And that's where they're going to remain, in the ditch. Uh, Warren, uh, is Doug Ford sending thank you notes to all these people that signed on to this letter? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, he's been getting knocked around a little bit these days, too. It was like, this is like manna from heaven. It's like, thank you guys for setting fire to yourselves in the public square. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, no, he's got to be pretty happy about it because, the, you know, uh, I know him and I know a lot of his people. The political party they're always most concerned about is the Ontario Liberals. And, you know, they've kept the Ontario Liberals on the mat for two elections in a row. They weren't sure if they were going to be able to pull it off with a third. Well, this kind of stunt today, this week, is going to ensure that the Ontario Liberal Party remains on the mat. It was the action of a bunch of losers, not winners. Well, as you know, there was even some speculation that, well, Ford's had a pretty good run. He probably won't run for a third term. You know, he retired to his place up in Muskoka or something. Uh, he's signing long-term leases up Queen's Park right now. I mean, there doesn't seem to be anything in the way. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. he's going to bolt the furniture to the ground because it's not going anywhere. <laughs> yeah, you, you're absolutely right. You know, you get, you know, if you're lucky in this business, you get kind of two runs at it. You get two uh, majorities or, or minorities. You know, that's why I think Trudeau needs to be thinking about leaving himself because he's coming up to his fourth uh, election as liberal leader. And in this case, you know, Ford is is uh, probably eyeing the exits a little bit. But when your opponents do something like this, what did Napoleon say? You know, when you're when your opponent's destroying himself, don't interrupt. Let him do it. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what Ford's going to do here. And probably the new Democrats as well. They're probably having a good giggle. Merritt Stiles, their new leader. Uh, pretty impressive person. She's probably having a good laugh about it as well. 
But from a strategic standpoint, which is right into your wheelhouse here, it, it's fairly obvious, as you say, Kathleen Wynne moved this party way further to the left than Dalton McGinney ever considered doing. Uh, and, and, you know, McGinney won. Well, Wynne did win one majority anyway. But when somebody like vacates the middle, which is where most Canadian voters are, it seems as if they will say, well, I guess we've lost that. We're just going to have to keep plowing to the left here. Isn't, isn't the strategy here, go get it back? Yeah, absolutely, because you're absolutely right. That's what the data shows or the statistics. And every study is most folks, especially in this country, are in the political center. And, you know, they'll deke a little bit to the left. They'll deke a little bit to the right, depending on the circumstances. But that's where the votes are. You know, that's where it makes the most sense. That's why I think Polyev is, is now beating Trudeau at the federal level with as much as, you know, 10 points, according to some polls, because he's now bringing his party back to the center, talking about cost of living and crime and issues like that. And, you know, how the Ontario Liberals didn't learn the lesson of, of Wynne's loss, you know, l- reducing the Ontario Liberal Party to seven seats, and then Stephen Del Duca reducing it to eight seats. It's like, guys, you know, trying to steal real estate from the NDP hasn't worked for you, you know? So when you're in a hole, stop digging. Like, just stop doing this and head back to where McGinty had it, to where Peterson had it which is in the political center. But, you know, these people, I guess they think they know better. I think they're about to learn a lesson they're not going to forget. Well, they, they seem to be going down a road that, that I didn't think I'd see for this party anyway for quite some time. Is, is you know, the Liberals, as you say, it's the, the big tent party. Uh, yes, we want to Im- be environmentally conscious, but at the same time, you know, we have to look at, at first of all, taxes and, and we need to promote business, etc. Uh, this group of Liberals seem to think it's either or, and, and that's, that's, that's 1960s thinking. It is. And the thing that is really, I mean, there's a number of things appalling about it. And I say that as somebody who ran all of McGinty's war rooms, we did okay in those elections. Is this the kind of politics that voters hate? You know, when they look at politics, they don't like the shouting at each other. They don't like the insults, but they don't like the self-interested backroom deals that are all about the politicians and not about the people. This is all for the political people who signed that letter. You know, Joe and Jane Front Porch look at that and say, well, what do I get out of this? What's the benefit for me? You know, whether they support Doug Ford or not, they just look at it and like this, this is just people in Toronto or wherever talking about themselves. They're not talking about the issues I care about. That's one of the things that turns people off politics more than anything else. When you're in a situation like that where you're trying to gain some ground, it, uh, I guess the the, the inclination sometimes might be, well, we need a political messiah, somebody that's just going to take us from worst to first and, and, you know, in one fell swoop. Doesn't happen very often. Uh, is that what they seem to be trying to do here? I mean, you mentioned you worked on McGinney's campaigns. Uh, Dalton McGinney was a, a good man and a very smart politician, but he was not charismatic in the way that some of the other leaders that we've talked about have been. But he he worked hard and built this party up and gained the confidence of, of his caucus and, of course, the party. These guys look like they want to just, you know, kind of bypass all that stuff and just try to take a shot at the top spot. That's right. And, you know, that is what politics is all about. It's a lot of hard work. There's no, you know, magic bullet. If there was, there'd be a lot of magic bullets flying around all the time. It's a lot of hard work. You know, it's policy work. It's finding the right leader. It's knocking on doors. It's going out and eat rubber chicken. It's fundraising. It's a lot of work. There's no magic solution ever. You know, I learned that at the knee of Jean Chrétien. I was his special assistant. And a lot of people counted us out. And Chrétien said, okay, uh, we're going to undersell and overperform. And we're just going to surprise them. We're going to do it with a lot of hard work. 
And that's what he did. And that's what Moroni did. That's what Harper did. The winners know that there's no magic solution. There's no magic dust you can, you know, drop over a problem and it disappears. You got to work at it. And these people, by sending their stupid letter, uh, you know, that I think they believe in rainbows and unicorns. It doesn't work like that in politics. You got to work at it. Well, if you're a longtime liberal in this province, and there are still a few of them left, I guess, uh, you look at the examples where they've succeeded. I mean, they were out of power for, what, 43 years uh, when the Conservatives ran everything yep. and ran it well, thank you. Uh, but, you know, when Peterson finally won an election, he did it the same way, too. Uh, he was not a superstar politician. He was a guy from London that worked his way up through the party uh, and built that confidence up. McGinty did the same thing. You know, not a, 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 a rock star like some people are expecting, but a guy that knows how to get the job done. Uh, they seem to have lost that message here yeah the flashy that you know i've worked out from all kinds of candidates in canada and the united states and, and middle east you name it and the you know the flashy glamour ones it never pans out you know the john carries or the gary hearts you know the, those kinds of guys they just never seem to come off the page you know people want somebody i call it a hoag hell of a guy you know, somebody they can picture having a beer with, somebody that they, you know, on a cold day like today is, you know, going to stop and give them a boost so they can get out of the ditch. That's the kind of political leader in our country, whether it's Rennie Levesque or Ralph Klein or Mel Lastman or, you know, Jean Chrétien. Those are the kind of guys who succeed because they're regular guys. And they're ones that know that you win by doing a lot of hard, a lot of hard work and knocking on a lot of doors. The solution is not the approach that these people have taken. Well, uh, we're going to hear from Mr. Schreiner. He tells us sooner than later, so I guess there'll be another chapter <laughs> written on this anyway. Yeah, we can talk about it some more. Yeah. Oh, I hope so, too. Warren, great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for Thanks, this my friend. Stay well Thanks and stay talking. warm. We'll talk again soon. Thanks, man. Take care. Warren Kinsella, of course, uh, worked a long time for the uh, the Gretchen uh, election campaign and Dalton McGinney as well, and uh, knows what of uh, is going on. He, as I said the other day, he knows how the sausage is made, and uh, he was in on the process many times, too. The guy knows how to win. Uh, they should be talking, if the liberals really want to try to revive their hopes here, they should be talking to people like him. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.